Hey there, and welcome to episode 5 of the Toxic Google Podcast, where great minds meet. Toxic Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. I'm Alan, and I'll be with you during this episode with the one and only Noam Chomsky. For the past 40 years, Noam's writings on politics and language have established him as a preeminent public intellectual and as one of the most original and wide-ranging political and social critics of our time. Among the seminal figures in linguistic theory over the past century, Chomsky has also secured a place as perhaps the leading dissident voice in the United States since the 1960s. In conversation with Googler Hassan Khalil, Professor Chomsky discusses wide-ranging topics from the development of his personal political views to the control of information and media. And now, here is Noam Chomsky. I wanted to ask you about um, your academic focus having been linguistics. You obviously know a whole lot about a whole lot of other things. And I wonder what makes something interesting to you? Well, several factors. Uh, first of all, it has to be a ch an intellectual challenge. Uh, secondly, it has to be of some significance. And there are many different dimensions of significance. So, for example, uh, uh, things that have an impact on human life and then in fact, survival are, of course, significant, even if they don't pose much of an intellectual challenge. On the other hand, uh, things that pose a very serious intellectual challenge, like uh, how is it possible that human beings can do what you and I are now doing, which is beyond the capacity of any other organism, that poses a very significant uh, intellectual challenge. It's human significance. When you really look into the details, you can debate. So there's different dimensions, different factors, uh, but it's essentially the same as uh, what a four-year-old finds interesting. You want to understand something about the world, and you want to do something important. I think that many of us lose the four-year-old curiosity over the years. What has, what has kept you curious in that way? You've obviously branched out so much throughout your life from your focus on linguistics. You've, you've branched out quite a lot from there. Um, is it, is it simply, this is something interesting to, for you know, understanding humanity, or is, it, is there something else? It's not that it matters much, but in fact, it's the other way around. I was very much engaged in uh, political life, social issues, long before I ever heard of linguistics. So tell us about that. You, uh, you took part in a lot of political activism um, sort of earlier on in the, over the course of your life. Um, how did you get started with that? What was the drive for that, and, and uh, what drew you to it? I grew up in the 1930s, which was quite an interesting period. Some ways a little bit like today, and other ways quite different. Uh, objectively, it was uh, much harsher than today. So conditions during the uh, depression here in the United States were much worse than they are today. Uh, subjectively, it was a much more optimistic period. Uh, today, it's kind of striking to see the uh, anger, uh, hopelessness. I get a dozen letters every night from mostly young people saying, oh, the world's awful, what can I do? It's hopeless. Uh, then it was pretty different, not, not over the whole country. If you were an agricultural worker fleeing the d dust bowl, it was pretty awful. But uh, in the circles that were my own milieu, which was mostly first-generation first immigrants, uh, working class, uh, at the time mostly unemployed, um, part of the very lively uh, activist, uh, militant, working class culture at the time, it was pretty hopeful. There was a sense uh, somehow we can get out of all this through solidarity, through uh, the working together. Uh, it was an educated community, even people who'd never gone to school couple of years of elementary school, but uh, discussing uh, the latest uh, 
varieties of uh, Freudian uh, psychoanalysis, uh, uh, the last uh, concert of the Budapest String Quartet, and so on. That was uh, worker education took place, a lot of it through the unions. Uh, it was just a, uh, there was a sense of uh, hopefulness, expectation, uh, solidarity, we can do things. There was a moderately sympathetic uh, administration, very unlike today, and uh, uh, it was possible to have some achievements which didn't end the depression, but softened the edges and made it look as if we can create a better future. So objectively, much worse, but subjectively, much better. And then, of course, in the background was what was happening in Europe, uh, the spread of fascism which was very frightening. I'm old enough to remember uh, listening on the radio to uh, the Nuremberg rallies and Hitler's speeches. I didn't understand the words, but there was no mistaking what it meant. And of course, to the first, it's kind of ironic, I guess, but uh, my wife and I happened to be in Barcelona at the time of the uh, November, November uh, 8th election. And uh, the attitude in Europe was the roof is falling in, you know. It, it, it was, uh, this is the end of the world, you know. And it happens that my, the first article that I wrote, that I remember at least, was about the fall of Barcelona. Uh, so I can easily date it, February 1939. Uh, I hope the article has disappeared. I'm sure it's not very memorable. I was. The editor of the fourth grade newspaper, <laughs> and probably the only reader, except maybe my mother. I don't know. But, but the article I remember it was about essentially about the rise of fascism. You know, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Toledo, Barcelona looked inexorable. This uh, monstrous shadow spreading all over the world. With uh, and this is long before the Holocaust. You know, it's. Uh, uh, so that's the background. On the other hand, there was what was happening more within reach. Uh, by the time I was about 12 years old, and I, we lived in Philadelphia, about 100 miles from New York. Uh, when I was 11 or 12, my parents had let me go to New York by myself on the train and stay with relatives and hang around. Uh, anarchist bookstores in Union Square. Uh, I wonder how many parents in the audience are thinking about sending their 12-year-old on a train from Philly well, to New York. That, that was, it was a much more peaceful time. <laughs> it's pretty dramatic. I mean, in those days, uh, you could, in New York, you could walk along, uh, say, the, the river, Riverside Drive or Central Park uh, at night uh, without any concern, you know. Uh, it's just a lot of things changed after the Second World War. I don't know exactly why, but the cities became much more dangerous, hostile places. There was plenty of conflict. You know, there were, you didn't, if you were Irish, you didn't go into the Italian neighborhoods and that sort of thing. But you weren't going to get killed. I mean, you might get, you know, chased or, well, I spent a lot of my childhood running away from Irish Catholic kids because they were too scary. But, uh, but you weren't going to get shot, you know, or knifed or anything like that. That all changed for some reason after the Second World War. All over the world, incidentally, here are strikingly. So you talk about uh, this general sentiment, though, of, of people being, the public being very hopeful and around sort of... Parts uh, of the public. At least parts of it. And, say, and, not, you know, not the people John Steinbeck was writing about. And you talk about an administration at that time that was maybe more sympathetic than the one that we have now. Um, leaving aside the administration part of that for the moment, uh, do you feel that that hope has evaporated? Do you feel that we have been able to reharness that in times of need? You talk about it as though it's, you know, this is very much in the past tense, is that intentional? Well, I think it's still there. In fact, uh, take a look at the last election, November election. Uh, it was pretty, there were two striking aspects of it. One of them, not very startling, namely uh, in the Republican primary, uh, uh, a, a person who was hated by the establishment, but who happens to be a billionaire, uh, won the nomination. 
Okay, it's kind of a surprise, but not startling that a billionaire con man should win a nomination. What happened to the Democratic side is much more dramatic. Uh, the uh, uh, Somebody arose who was unknown, nobody ever heard of him. Uh, he had no uh, support from any of the sources of wealth and power, uh, no corporate support, no uh, funding from the wealthy. Uh, he, uh, he even used a scare word, socialist, which means mildly social democratic. In fact, his policies wouldn't have surprised Eisenhower very much. That's a sign of the sharp shift to the right in the whole spectrum. But from the point of view of the existing spectrum, he seemed way on the outside. He would have won the Democratic Party nomination if it hadn't been for the machinations of the Obama-Clinton uh, party managers. That's a break from over 100 years of American political history. I mean, American elections are pretty much bought. Uh, you can literally pretty well predict uh, electability just on the basis of simple variables like campaign spending. It's remarkable. Not just president. There's a recent interesting study by Tom Ferguson, who's done the main work on this over at the UMass Political Science Department. He and some colleagues uh, came out last year with a study of congressional elections from about 1980 up till the present, and simply asking what's the relation between campaign funding and electability, uh, which of course means policy. It's practically a straight line. Um, just don't get results in, like that in the social sciences. It's startling. And the same is true of the presidential elections. And it's been known for a long time. Uh, you go back to the 1890s. Uh, there was a very famous campaign manager, Mark Hanna, who was the star of campaign management. He was asked once, uh, what does it take to win an election? And he said it takes two things. Uh, the first one is money. And I've forgotten what the second one is. <laughs> that was 1895, way before Citizens United or any of this stuff. Uh, here comes Sanders, and he just broke the pattern of over 100 years. It's astonishing. What's more, he, thanks to Fox News, uh, we know that he's the most popular political figure in the country, a poll that they ran by a huge margin, and among young people, enormous. Well, what does that mean? That means there's real signs of hope. It's out of the, uh, you know, these two non-establishment figures won the public, of course, not the establishment assures itself that it controls the political system uh, and the decisions. So Trump could rail against uh, Wall Street and Goldman Sachs on the campaign trail, but take a look at his cabinet. Okay. So they make sure they basically run the show, but they're losing the population. And the same is happening in Europe. Uh, the French election was a good example. Two candidates from outside the two political parties. Although the, you know, the thrust of policy will remain not all that different. You know? But that's a sign of potential changes. If we can ever go back to having functioning, you know, go back to partially create functioning democratic societies, it uh, could be quite different. So stepping back a moment then to the, the political activism in your life, what do you remember out of your you know, career, let's say, in political activism as being some of the, these are the moments that were defining for me? Well, what was defining for me was uh, things like, um, those of you who know New York City, in those days, uh, Union Square used to be a kind of a center of uh, radical... Uh, uh, offices, Freie Arbeiterstimme, for example, the Yiddish uh, anarchist uh, uh, movement had its offices there and others. And if you went down Fourth Avenue, which is now all gentrified, uh, there were small bookstores with uh, um, a, a lot of them run by European emigres. A number of the ones that kind of gravitated towards were um, refugees from Spain, people who fled from after the 
uh, crushing of the anarchist revolution in 1937. And I uh, picked up all kind of uh, pamphlets, understanding. I learned a lot of things which are just barely getting into the news now. For example, you can read books now which point out, point out somewhat misleadingly that in the 1930s, uh, theoretically, the United States, the Roosevelt administration, was uh, uh, following a policy of neutrality. They don't support either side, the fascists or the republic. In fact, they were supporting the fascists. Uh, I learned it in 1939 uh, from reading uh, pamphlets and left-wing literature and others which exposed the fact that uh, the Texco oil company, which was run by an outright Nazi, didn't even hide it, uh, had contracts with the Republic to supply oil. Uh, in the middle of the conflict, he shifted. He started supplying oil to the fascist forces, to Franco. There were questions asked. The State Department denied it. It turned out to be true. It was reported in the left-wing press. And oil was the one thing that the uh, Germans and the Italians, the fascist countries, couldn't supply the, the Franco's forces. They didn't have it, so they needed it. And uh, Roosevelt and the State Department pretended they didn't see it. Only the small left-wing press saw it. It was later kind of conceded. It's now kind of pretty much, you know, in scholarship at least, it's sort of acknowledged a few years later. But I, I knew that in 1939, just from hanging around the left-wing offices. Uh, that, that, and you could see what was going on. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, the, the administration, Roosevelt, was very bitter and angry when they found... Uh, a Mexican, uh, an American businessman who had sold a couple of pistols to the Republic, you know, violating the Neutrality Act, big condemnation. And meanwhile, the major oil company was breaking its contracts with the Republic and shifting them to uh, the fascists. Well, that's an educational experience. I also learned things about the the civil, the, the war in Spain. I mean, it wasn't just the Republicans versus the fascists. There was a popular revolution in 1936, libertarian revolution, which was pretty successful. And it was crushed. It was crushed by the joint efforts of the fascists, the communists, and the liberal democracies. Uh, they had a lot of differences, but there was one thing they agreed on. You can't have a free society. You can't have a libertarian society, so they cooperated on that. Actually, the attack was led by the communists, who were the party of the police force and the petty bourgeoisie, and very opposed to any form of uh, uh, socialist or left uh, activism. So, okay, I mean, those are things you learn if you pay attention. And it was uh, reinforced by other parts of my the family environment at the time in New York, you could, I mean, it was a very lively political scene. Every variety of left-wing politics you can imagine was debated hotly. In fact, it's a friend of mine who's a philosopher at Columbia who told me recently that he and his wife got a place up in the Catskills to hang out in the summer. It turns out there's retirement communities there. We said the people in the retirement communities are still debating uh, <laughs> which brand of Trotskyism was right. The same arguments they were having in the 1930s. <laughs> it's worth remembering that working class education was a very serious phenomenon then. It goes way back. I mean, go back to the late 19th century here. Uh, early industrial revolution. Um, if an uh, Irish uh, blacksmith uh, could get enough money, he'd hire a boy to uh, read to him while he's working. And reading meant uh, what we now call classics, modern the contemporary literature. Uh, there were young women from the farms called factory girls who were kind of compelled to get into the textile factories in eastern New England, and they had a, they had their own publications. You read them, they 
bitterly condemned the fact that the industrial system was depriving them of their culture, of their dignity, their independence. Uh, you're selling yourself, not what you produce. You know, it's quite different. And part of it was an attack on the culture. Same in England, which is a massive study, an interesting study by a guy named Jonathan Rose of the uh, reading habits of the English working class. And it turns out his own conclusion is they were better educated than the aristocrats. Uh, they didn't go to school, may not have gone to school, you know, certainly didn't go to Oxford, but uh, they were the, the um, working class, uh, the rising working class had its own institutions of education and culture, which was significant. A lot of that has been destroyed it's, uh, uh, in all kinds of ways. Uh, Google doesn't help. But that's another story. <laughs> Happy to do our part. <laughs> so I ask you about political activism, and you talk about learning a lot. What part of that is? Uh, what part of activism uh, did you take part in? And well, that was defining for I mean, me. I was twelve years old. You know, not a lot of activism. But actually, the kind of activism I was involved in mostly in those years was uh, within. Was within what was, it was, it's now called anti-Zionist. At that time, it was Zionist. There was, a, I was, my parents and my immediate milieu were deeply embedded in the whole revival of Hebrew, revival of Jewish culture, connections to Palestine, and so on. I kind of grew up with that. And my own actual, most of the activism was internal to that system. It was what is now called anti-Zionist. It was strongly opposed to a Jewish state in support of uh, Arab-Jewish uh, working-class cooperation in Palestine with all kinds of ideas about uh, how to create a society based on the cooperatives and so on that uh, kind of died in 1948. But then at the time, it was alive, something you could be part of. And it extended to other things like uh, there wasn't much in the way of activism, but when the British uh, conquered Greece in 1944 and carried out brutal repression of the anti-fascist forces in Greece, uh, there were a couple of us who tried to pr protest whatever it meant and when you're 15 years old, you know. And you got very physically involved. Uh, there wasn't much you could do. It was right in the middle of the war. Uh, there was a lot of uh, patriotism, you know, dedication to the war effort. Uh, bringing up these things was, uh, by, the, by the time the war started, the political ferment declined because of commitment to the war effort. Uh, and it was just, it overwhelmed everything else. It was still around, like I was in high school in the early 40s, and it happened that the high school I was in was right next to a prisoner of war camp were mostly German prisoners, and in those days, security meant a wire fence, so no, no big deal. We could, and a lot of the students were kind of ridiculing and mocking and screaming at the German POWs, and a couple of us were strongly opposed to them. And tried to, you know, tried to get them to understand that they, they were, you know, there could be sort of. Like I said, it's not violent the way it is today. Sure. It's uh, the kind of thing that young boys do, you know. Uh, it was boys, of course, and was segregated. But uh, we tried a couple of us, maybe two or three of us, to try to change the mood of the students to understand that these guys on the other side of the fence are not criminals. So that's fascinating. What do you mean by we tried to change the mood? Was that discourse? To talk to people. It's uh, education. And these are high school students yeah. having intellectual discourse about the prisoner of war camp right I next door to the high school. It's probably easier for high school students than at the Harvard faculty. Oh, I imagine, <laughs> I imagine that. You'll forgive me for being a product of my own time where I just can't even imagine a high school next to a prisoner of war camp. Well, and separated by a wire fence. Right. Yeah. right. You, you became a little bit more, perhaps, politically active uh, later on in your life than at least... More uh, uh, oh, oh, publicly articulate, but the political activism never changed. Actually, it declined in the 50s. 50s were a pretty quiescent period. 
Um, political activism was pretty individual. There was not a lot going on. It was uh, there were things in the background, but it was a pretty quiet conformist period. But then, you know, the sixties, early sixties, everything changed. Everything yeah. changed, and you became then very active, publicly active. Um, yeah. But it wasn't that much of a change for me, you know, personally. I'm I just see. a different sphere. You know. I see. So, what drove you to become more publicly active? Well, the John F. Kennedy. Uh, so it's still kind of like off the agenda. In 1961 and 62, Kennedy very sharply escalated the Vietnam War. It was already pretty awful. Uh, the maybe 60 or 70,000 South Vietnamese had already been killed by the uh, regime that the U.S. had imposed in the 1950s, but it was kind of under the radar, like you weren't seeing, you could find out about it, but you weren't seeing much. Uh, by 61 and 62, the uh, repression of the South Vietnamese regime we'd installed in violation of the Geneva Accords uh, had become so harsh that a popular rebellion sprang up. Uh, the, the North actually opposed it. They didn't want to they wanted to build the country, not get involved in a conflict with the U.S., but the uh, National Liberation Front, what propaganda calls the Viet Cong, uh, were beginning to uh, uh, cause, uh, beginning to develop and uh, become active in the late 50s, and uh, the regime couldn't contain them. So uh, there was a crisis. Uh, the Kennedy, Kennedy decided to escalate the war. Uh, the U.S. Air Force uh, began to bomb South Vietnamese targets under uh, South Vietnamese markings, like the planes had South Vietnamese markings, but nobody's fooled. Uh, I learned about it myself in a small item, uh, maybe 10 lines in a back page of the New York Times, which just happened to mention casually that uh, the U.S. Air Force is bombing South Vietnamese targets. And, uh, the, the authorized napalm. He started the chemical warfare, serious chemical warfare, uh, to try to destroy crops and livestock, to starve out the population. They began to programs to drive people uh, into um, what amounted to concentration camps. They were called strategic hamlets, where uh, peasants were driven off the land. Uh, um, driven into these places, into urban slums, and the, the official rhetoric was to protect them from the guerrillas, which, in fact, the government knew very well they were supporting. Uh, it, it wasn't widely reported, but if you looked carefully, and you know, from my own experience back in the late 30s, early 40s, I knew that you really had to look carefully. You know, take a look at the headlines, you have to put together what's lying behind them, like the Texaco story. And uh, it was pretty clear that there was a sharp escalation of the war going on. So I, I did try to become active. What being active at that time meant uh, giving a talk to uh, uh, some couple of people in somebody's living room, or maybe uh, in a church uh, where there were four people, you know, the the minister who was mildly sympathetic, uh, uh, some drunk who walked in from the street, uh, another guy who wanted to kill you, and uh, maybe one person who was sort Sounds of... Sounds like a great way to start a movement. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was like. It later changed, but it took years. I mean, it wasn't until... Uh, right here in Boston, if those of you are old enough may remember, but in Boston, which is a pretty liberal city, uh, the first public demonstration against the war was in October 1965. Uh, internationally, that was uh, an international day of protest was called. So we decided we'll take part in it. And there was a march from Harvard Square to the Boston Common, and supposed to be a demonstration there. I was supposed to be one of the speakers. It was violently broken up. Uh, by counter-demonstrators, a lot of them students. Uh, there were 
a lot of state police, which is the only reason we didn't get killed. Nobody could hear the speakers. It was impossible. Yeah, take a look at the Boston Globe the next day. It uh, praised the counter-demonstrators, denounced the demonstrators for you know, daring to question our great country and what it's doing and so on. Uh, March 1966 was the next international day of protest. Uh, we realized we couldn't have a public demonstration, so we had a meeting at the Arlington Street Church. Church was attacked. Again, uh, tomatoes, you know, cans, uh, and so on. But at that time, there were already a couple hundred thousand American troops rampaging in South Vietnam. It took a long time. For, uh, the country was practically destroyed. I mean, by, at that time, uh, Bernard Fall, who was actually a hawk, but was uh, uh, a highly respected and serious uh, military historian and Vietnam specialist. Uh, by the U.S. government, he was the one non-government specialist who was respected rightly. He, he was a hawk, but he cared about the Vietnamese people. And he was writing at the time, 66, 67, that he wasn't sure that Vietnam could survive as a cultural and historic entity under the most savage attack that any region that size had ever suffered. At that point, you're just barely beginning to get some visible protest. It's changed a lot. The country's become much more civilized since then. By now, the uh, opposition to aggression and violence is far more widespread. Governments just uh, can't do what, like say the invasion of Iraq is the first time in uh, the entire history of imperialism that uh, there was massive protest uh, on the before the invasion actually took place. And uh, the, it was pretty horrible what happened. Not to go into it, but uh, the Bush administration could never contemplate what the Kennedy administration just did without any second thought. Public has just changed too much. So, um, over your extensive career and being an activist in many different veins, obviously you've learned a lot along the way, um, and it's useful to share information with the world as you do. Let me uh, give you one example which is kind of interesting, maybe 30 years from now it'll enter awareness. But take the Texco Oil Company and uh, uh, the Spanish Civil War. That uh, it was repeated under the Clinton administration. Virtually the same thing. Uh, under the Clinton, there was a, uh, in Haiti, uh, f for the first time in its history, there was a free election. 1990, and it was won by a, um, a, a, a priest, Jean Baptiste Aristide, who um, nobody paid any attention to. He was supported by uh, people who were considered not worth looking at uh, urban slums, uh, rural areas, a lot of grassroots activism, and to everyone's surprise, he won the election. Uh, they expected the U.S. candidate would win, Mark Bazan, a World Bank guy, who, but uh, Aristide won the election, and he, he instituted the, um, uh, the, the main question is, when will the military coup take place? It took out seven, seven months later. It's quite interesting what happened, but the military coup took place, a vicious, brutal terror uh, began. Uh, the uh, U.S actually tacitly supported it in many ways. 1994, the Clinton administration uh, decided, okay, enough terror had taken place so that uh, the population subdued, we can now allow the president to return. The eve of the, the, the there was a Marine landing in 1994, everyone paying attention to it, it was quite public. Uh, at the time, I uh, happened to be, uh, there was a guy at MIT who was working on a project of experimenting to allow people to have access to the AP wires, which is pretty interesting because what you get when you look at the AP wires is just raw news, you know, stuff pouring out constantly. Uh, the AP wires feature a story every day, keeps repeating, you know, to editors, here's the big story. 
the day before the Marine invasion of uh, Haiti, the big story was uh, the Treasury Department concedes that the Texco Oil Company has been providing oil to the military junta while the CIA and the Clinton administration were denying that any oil was going to them. Well, I was going to write an article about it, but the article that I would write would come out two months later. So I figured it's not even worth mentioning this. It will be public news. Still not been reported. Mm. You know, Those are the things that happen in the world if you pay attention. So you've obviously been very successful in uh, um sort of reporting on these types of things and raising awareness, and, and that has been one avenue for your activism. I wonder, um, is this intrinsic to who you are or how you approach knowledge? Why aren't there more Noam Chomsky's in the world? Well, I think there are plenty of them. Uh, for example, uh, why is Bernie Sanders the most popular figure in the United States, political figure in the United States, by a huge margin? Uh, who's, where's the... Where are those people who pick him as the most popular person? I mean, they may not be well known, but they're there. I should think that as a percentage of the rest of um, sort of the people out there who are active in the same way, very few of them are as educated as you have made yourself. Be surprised. I mean, go to. Uh, I mean, people may not know things about the whole world, but they know things about their lives and the situation that they're in. Uh, take a look at polls. Uh, why, uh, for maybe, uh, take say, uh, an issue that's right in the main, on the headlines, healthcare. Uh, what do people think about healthcare? Well, it turns out that uh, over a long period, uh, most of the population has supported a national healthcare system of the kind that other countries have. It doesn't, uh, which is pretty remarkable because nobody publicly advocates it. When uh, Obama put through the um, Affordable Care Act, at the time, uh, initially, there was a, what was called a public option, which means you could choose to have essentially Medicare, you know, national health care. Uh, almost two-thirds of the population favored it even though there was no public articulate support for it. It was dropped, of course, without comment. Now you go back a little farther, and say late Reagan years, uh, turned out that about 70% of the population thought that uh, guaranteed health care should be in the Constitution, because it's an obvious right. And about 40% thought it already was in the Constitution. Uh, the Constitution is just some holy writ, which has everything good in it. So it must have had guaranteed health care, because that's so obvious. That's the public. Of course, it's not the elites. It's not the media. It's not uh, the elite discourse. In fact, whenever uh, the possibility is mentioned, it's called uh, politically impossible or lacking political support which is accurate if by political support you mean the pharmaceutical corporations and the insurance companies and so on. Yeah, they don't support it. And the way our democracy works, that's political support. But the public is there. And uh, is, it, is it educated? I mean, you know, where do people get these ideas from? Or take, say, the Vietnam War. That's a very, it's a very interesting, revealing situation at the end of the Vietnam War. When the Vietnam War ended in 1975, every uh, famous person had to make a statement about it. You know, so there's a ton of material about looking back at the Vietnam War and what it would mean and so on. And there was a spectrum. I've written about it, went through it. There's a spectrum. It, at one end, it said uh, it was a noble cause. Uh, if we'd fought harder, we could have won. Uh, you know, uh, we have to honor the effort. Actually, Obama agrees with this. Uh, that's the hawkish end. Uh, then you go over to the kind of what's called the left, you know, the critical end. People like, say, uh, Anthony Lewis, who was one of the most uh, harshest critics of the war way out on the left. He wrote an article in which he said, the war, be I'm quoting it, the war began with blundering efforts to do good. Uh, notice that that's an axiom. 
You don't have to give evidence for that. If we did it, it was efforts to do good, by definition, on the left, uh, what's called the left, uh, blundering because it didn't work. So it began with blundering efforts to do good, but by 1969, it had become clear that it was a disaster. Uh, we couldn't bring democracy to Vietnam at a cost acceptable to ourselves. That's the critical end, okay? Uh, you don't have to give an argument to say we're trying to bring democracy. That's also an axiom. That's kind of a principle. You don't question it. It's like two plus two equals four. Well, at the very same time, there were polls taken among the public. Now, what did they find? They found that around 70% of the public said the war was not a mistake. It was fundamentally and morally wrong. And that went on as long as the polls were taken till the early 80s. Now, the, guy, the people who were running the polls, good liberal academic uh, 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 political scientist, uh, he did comment on these results. And he said, well, what it means is that people were opposed to American soldiers dying. Okay, maybe that's what it meant. Uh, maybe it meant they thought it was fundamentally wrong and immoral, as they said. But that concept is it's just kind of inconceivable, you know. So it's, uh, but that's the public. Were they educated? Well, I, I'd say they were more educated than the elites who were writing, uh, the educated elites who were writing the articles. So switching gears for a moment, um, it's easy to find a lot of material on you speaking either online or, or you know, articles that you've written about egregious wrongs in the world and you know, the, the historical background for these types of things. Uh, you have a lot of context for that. I wonder, how do you stay sane knowing how much room for improvement there is? Where's the levity in your life? And can you tell us a joke? <laughs> I've I've looked, I already told I've, you a joke, Mark Hanna. <laughs> I've looked uh, for for quite some time for video of you telling a joke. It just doesn't seem to exist. Well, that's the people who make the videos. It's their problem. <laughs> I, I was also curious about uh, you. You're obviously very effective at sort of assimilating new information and um, and sort of digesting that in a in a comprehensive way. I wonder uh, about the tools, technology, and routines that help make your day productive. How do you work? It's pretty straightforward. Uh, how did uh, 19th century working class uh, uh, people gain an education that was superior to that of the aristocrats in England. Did they use the internet? They read, you know. You look at what's going on around you, you talk to other people, you have interactions, you read, you learn about things. It's not quantum physics. It's what's understood at all is pretty much on the surface in these domains. It's just a matter of working. It's a little easier now. It used to be the case that if uh, you know you want to look into a say you know the, some, the, the background and you wanted to see what what was the press saying about uh, some topic in the 1970s. Okay, I have to go to the library, uh, uh, look up the microfilm. Uh, it's a bit of a nuisance. And now you can get it on the internet uh, thanks to uh, uh, the, what we call the free market, which means the taxpayer putting huge amounts of subsidies into developing the high-tech system of the next generation, which is handed over to private corporations for marketing and profit. So that's the internet and computers and so on and so forth. Uh, so now it's a lot easier than going to the library and looking up the microfilms, but not that different. I mean, the change from no libraries to libraries was a much bigger change than from libraries to the internet. In fact, uh, similarly, the you know the change from uh, sailing ships to telegraph was a much bigger change than uh, speeding up uh, communication by 
a couple of uh, milliseconds with some new technique, you know. So it's it's a little easier now, but not fundamentally different. So uh, this next question came in from uh, Rakesh Sa. I apologize for the pronunciation there from India. In an interview in 2012, you mentioned that artificial intelligence is going in the wrong direction by putting more emphasis on statistical techniques to mine data. Where do you think it's heading now? And what steps should we take to make it sort of more meaningful to society? Well, I, I don't know exactly what that quote is from, but uh, I mean, artificial intelligence, uh, what's called artificial intelligence, which is just part of cognitive science, it can, like any part of science, can go in two different directions. It can, be, it can direct itself towards uh, some engineering application which may or may not be useful, or it can go into trying to understand something about the world. Those are the choices. Uh, so take, say, uh, the work that inter happens to interest me most on language. Uh, one thrust is uh, trying to understand uh, how it is that we can, for example, do what we're now doing. Okay, what lies behind that? What's, uh, what are the mental operations? Or what are the principles? How is it acquired, and so on? Okay, that's one domain. Another domain is uh, how can we get something that's useful to give a kind of a rough translation of. Uh, an article in uh, uh, French into English, the Google Translator. That's okay. I mean, I use it. It's fine. It's, uh, but it's a brute force uh, uh, engineering achievement. It doesn't tell you anything about how the world is working. It just says, here's something useful like a bulldozer. I don't have anything against bulldozers. I think they're great, you know, a lot easier than digging with a shovel. But uh, but it's not intellectually uh, it's not an intellectually interesting achievement. It's useful. Okay. Have you driven a bulldozer? <laughs> I mean, I haven't, but I dream I to someday. I, I'd be I'd be scared. But, <laughs> but I have a shovel. <laughs> okay. Well, we have a base context then, and shared experience with that. That's good. So, so yeah, I, I think that this is this is an interesting thing that I think you've talked about in the past. Was the, the interview, by the way, was in 2012 with The Atlantic. I'd, I'd love to unpack that a little bit. Where would you like to see, how, how would you like to see AI research tackle these types of deeper understanding problems? Whenever you learn something in the sciences, what immediately happens is you discover there's a mass of new things which I never noticed before that I don't understand. I mean, scientific research is kind of like mountain climbing. You think that that peak over there is the top, but when you get there, you find, wait a minute, turns out there's other peaks that you didn't notice before. Well, that's where scientific research would go. Uh, take, uh, I mean, what happens to interest me is uh, human uh, cognitive capacity which is an astonishing fact. Uh, humans are absolutely unique in the organic world in an enormous number of respects. Uh, humans are not that uh, uh, old in evolutionary terms, about 200,000 years. So something happened around 200,000 years ago, you know, plus or minus, which created an entirely new organism, uh, which has what we call higher intelligence, uh, which it is now using, incidentally, uh, to create something that should be headlines in every newspaper. Uh, we're using human intelligence to create a perfect storm. Uh, since the Second World War, uh, human intelligence has created means of uh, suicide, self-destruction. Uh, the first is nuclear weapons. The Second World War ended with the nuclear age was obvious right at the time, I tell you personal experiences, that we had now, human intelligence had now devised the means to destroy everything. Uh, that's the nuclear age, we've barely survived it. It wasn't known then, but it's now known that at the same time, end of the Second World War, we'd entered a new geological epoch, what's called the Anthropocene, where human activities are having a 
severely destructive impact on the environment. Now, geologists have kind of debated its inception, but they've now more or less agreed, the World Geological Organization has agreed on the end of the Second World War. So here we created two huge sledgehammers, uh, which are uh, able to destroy us. Uh, in the 1970s, human intelligence took the next step. Let's destroy the means to protect ourselves. That's pretty much what happened as the new, as the period of what was called regimented capitalism shifted to the neoliberal era. The neoliberal era of the last generation is dedicated in principle to destroying the only means to defend ourselves from destruction. It's not called that. What it's called is uh, shifting decision-making from public institutions, which at least in principle are under public influence, uh, to private institutions which are immune from public control in principle. Now that's called the shifting to the market. It's under the rhetoric of freedom, but it just means servitude. It means servitude to unaccountable private institutions. Uh, the uh, rhetoric, those of you who remember uh, Margaret Thatcher, uh, there is no society, just individuals, uh, an ideal, not a description, but she may not have known it, but she was paraphrasing Karl Marx, uh, who uh, at the period of the severe French repression, said the French repression is turning society into a sack of potatoes. Uh, amorphous class of individuals who can't work together or separated and atomized. That's the ideal of neoliberalism. Let's turn society into a sack of potatoes. Let's eliminate the institutions that might, in which uh, in, uh, engaged in the people might get together to try to deal constructively with their problems. Let's transfer it into the hands of unaccountable private institutions which are devoted in principle to profit maximization, power maximization. Of course, that means undermining democracy. That's what's happened. That's why we see what's called, it's a bad term, it's called the populist uprising. There's nothing populist about it. It means anger, fear, hatred, discontent, contempt for institutions, a collapse of institutions, a direct consequence of the neoliberal economic policies, uh, which have also led to stagnation or decline for the majority. Uh, real wages have actually declined since 1979 when the program began. Uh, all of this is together and put it together, what you have is human intelligence has created two uh, means of destroying ourself, and it has also been actively engaged in trying to eliminate the only protection we have against them. So it's a kind of perfect storm. Uh, that's what humans have done. H how did this happen? How did we get this way? How did we develop creative capacities of a unique uh, uh, kind which have led to extraordinary achievements? Okay, these are things we ought to try to understand. Uh, all of them. I didn't do something about, not just understand. Uh, another question from Oleg Shushkov uh, from Australia asks, um, how do you think Google can and should handle the fake news problem? We have a big hammer. We're looking for nails. Well, by not contributing to it. Uh, so for example, uh, you know, the internet is actually slowing down in some respects. Uh, one of the reasons it's slowing down is because uh, if you uh, pick up, uh, you will say, access, uh, say, the New York Times, uh, the first thing that gets loaded is a ton of ads which slow everything down. Uh, all of this is going on all the time. It's contributing to the uh, narrowness of uh, coverage and even to the kind of coverage because it's influenced by, of course, the choice, the, the funding, an institution, of course, in, uh, influenced by its funders, mostly advertisers. So all of that's happening and it's, uh, you know, it's not what people call fake news, but it's a distortion of the world 
in ways that shouldn't be happening. So the actual news, I think, should be what we've just been talking about. Like, uh, why are we just, why for the last generation have we constructed socioeconomic policies and political policies which are uh, developing a perfect storm which could destroy us. That's what so we if we could devise a way for, I mean, obviously advertising uh, monetization is the way that a lot of publications exist. And perhaps without it, many of those publications would be without the funding required to continue. That's not true. The period of the freest, most lively press in the United States was probably the 19th century, when you had a proliferation of uh, all kinds of newspapers, uh, ethnic, uh, working class, uh, I mentioned the factory girls, there were others. Uh, uh, what happened in the late 19th century is, uh, in England and the United States, which also was similar, a shift towards a capital concentration and advertiser reliance. And that has very sharply narrowed and changed the, uh, the, the nature of uh, media. Uh, so, uh, let's say in England, uh, as late as the 1960s, uh, the most popular widely read newspaper was uh, the Daily Herald which was kind of social democratic. Uh, the tabloids in England, which are now monstrous, were labor-based newspapers, pretty interesting. Uh, they succumbed to the consequences of capital concentration and uh, advertiser reliance and became quite different. Uh, similar here, and when I was a kid growing up, there were several newspapers delivered, local newspapers delivered every day. Uh, they were not. They had a certain variety. Uh, now they're in the Boston. Now there isn't even one. Um, the Boston Globe used to be a pretty, pretty decent newspaper. You know, problems, but a lot of they had bureaus all over the world. They had very good reporters. And uh, take a look at it now. It basically doesn't exist. It uh, has some local news, and the rest it picks up. Uh, New York Times, Washington Post, and AP. Uh, that's happened all over the country. Uh, it it's, has a lot of reasons behind it, but it's, uh, a large part of it is the, it's been going on for over a century. It's just continuing. large part is the effect of capital concentration and advertiser reliance, which affects the content of the, uh, the media reporting as well. In that case, we'll cancel our advertising programs. See, advertising is a very interesting phenomenon. Uh, any of you have taken an economics course, know that uh, the, the, the beauty, the marvels of the market that we're supposed to admire and worship are because a market is based on informed consumers making rational choices. Then you prove all sorts of theorems about how wonderful it is. Uh, turn on your television set. Uh, do you see efforts by corporations to uh, create ra informed consumers making rational choices? Um, is that what you see when you see an ad for cars? Um, if we had a market system, what you would see is when General Motors is um, advertising a car, what you would see is a list of the characteristics of the car uh, along with a report by consumers' report saying what's wrong with it and so on. That would create informed consumers who could make rational choices. But you don't see that. What you see is an effort to delude, you know, a, a movie star, a football player, a car shooting up into the stratosphere or whatever it may be. Uh, huge amounts of capital are expended every year to try to undermine markets undermine markets by creating uninformed consumers making irrational choices and driving them to consumerism which atomizes rather than serious things. That's what ought to be taught in economics courses. Massive efforts by the business community to undermine markets. Uh, it's, right, it's not deep. We all know it, you know, but we just somehow don't think about it. And that, just as we don't think about the fact that the, uh, you know, the uh, marvels of free enterprise like computers, the internet, and so on, were created by the taxpayer at public expense, 
in places like MIT right across the street. So I wish we could go on forever, I'm riveted, but unfortunately we're out of time. Um, thank you so much for coming. The one thing I will say, though, is that it's not every day that a non-Googler gets to sit in a room full of people who work at Google and our software engineers and our advertising experts and our you know, market experts in different fields. Do you have anything that you'd like to ask us? Why not do some of the serious things? <laughs> okay. Something that we like. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more amazing content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle at talks at Google. Talk soon. <laughs>